everybody. Merry Christmas. It's not quite Christmas yet, but that is what we are saying to each other. We are still in the Advent season, anticipating Christmas morning when we will celebrate the birth of Christ. We will do that together this, uh, this Saturday evening here in this space at our Christmas Eve service. And then again, we'll be back here um, for what we're calling an unplugged service on Christmas morning, which will just be very much like this, only we'll have less speakers and, uh, and it'll be a little bit more intimate. It should be a, a wonderful time. Before we dive in this morning, I have two things I want you to be really aware of. Um, the first one is January is just a couple of weeks away. And uh, in January, what is typical and common for many of you is to uh, commit to some sort of reading of your Bible. And that's a very good thing. I want to invite you to read the Bible with us as a church together next year. And the way that we're going to do that is through this uh, 2023 five-day Bible reading program. This is a five-day Bible reading program. Uh, this last year, I adjusted my own rhythm to this reading program and found that it was a massive blessing to me and to my family. We invited some friends to also join with us, and it's been a blessing to us. There are free copies of this at the Next Steps table before you leave. So grab a copy of this. It's very easy. It's five days, so you're not reading too much, and then uh, you get the weekends off. You can either just read the New Testament next year, or if you do all the readings, you'll have the whole Bible next year. I just think this is fantastic. You'll hear us reference it next year a few times as we move throughout the year, so something to be aware of. Um, I take one of these, I fold it up into fours, I put it into my Bible. I like that this allows you to use your own Bible, um, and there's some other resources there. So uh, if you are interested in reading your entire Bible next year, being in God's Word, um, um, five days a week, Monday through Friday, and then with us on Sunday, maybe using Saturday to catch up, um, then you can feel free to grab one of these. We'll, we'll have them this week and next week and into the new year. But I can't more highly recommend the importance of being in God's word every day. So if you don't know how to do that, and some of you throughout the time uh, have come to me and said, hey, I wish I had something you know, that would kind of give me some direction, and this will help in that. So that's the first thing I have for you. Join us next year in reading scripture every day. The second thing I have for you involves a big word that you've probably heard before, which is the word catechism. Catechism is a word that maybe you associate with the Catholic Church, though it's been a part of the Christian Church since Christianity's inception. Catechism functions as a simple way of teaching the basics of Christian faith. And about six or seven years ago, my family started making a weekly habit of every week around the dinner table discussing the catechism so that our children, as they grew up in our home, would get a robust Christian faith. I want to be very clear. I think we all know if you want your children or even yourself, you want to grow in the basics of Christian faith, you cannot walk outside of your home and expect the culture to do that for you. Am I right? Right? No one's going to like, the culture will disciple your kids, but they will not in the way of Jesus. And so um, if you want to grow in the basics of your faith, next year we're going to incorporate also into the rhythm of our church the New City Catechism. The New City Catechism is a, a broadly evangelical, slightly reformed catechism, uh, for those of you who know what those words mean. And... Um, 
and it is 52 questions and answers, one per week. We'll start at the beginning of the year, and we'll use it as we go throughout the year. Um, it is, uh, for us, the habit of every week reading a basic question and a basic answer so that through 52 weeks you end up with a kind of robust, kind of broad, basic knowledge of Christian faith is so invaluable. Memorizing the catechism will help you tremendously. I can't emphasize that enough. You've probably heard me regularly preach on the importance of just the first question, which is what is our only hope in life and death? And the answer is that we are not our own, but that we belong to God. And I can think of almost no more countercultural thing to say today than to say, we proudly proclaim we don't belong to ourselves, we belong to God. Um, so when you also go to the next steps table, you're going to find a sample devotional, which, can you, which you can use with the catechism if you want some devotional readings. Additionally to that, you'll find an adult question and answer book if you want a physical book. And you'll also discover these really small um, New City Catechism for Kids books. We want to give one of these for free to every single um, parent who has uh, kids in Risen Junior. These are also at the table. The Catechism has an adult and a kid version for simplicity's sake. So again, I can't recommend next year. If you just decided to add to your rhythm next year, look, you're going to make a bunch of resolutions that you're probably not going to keep. Um, let me recommend highly to try your best uh, with the help of God's people and his spirit to, uh, to lead us into scripture reading and catechism next year. After the service, I'll be at the Next Steps table if you have more questions about either of those things, why I think they're so important, how we have integrated them into our own life, and why you should consider doing it as well. Okay. Okay, so those are some pitches. I just had to get that out of the way because it's December 18th and you're going to travel and then next week and the next two weeks are going to be kind of, you guys will be all over the place and then the first will be here before you know it and you'll want to know what am I doing, what am I doing, what am I doing. Here's great resources for you at the Next Steps table. Okay, all right. If I didn't already say my name is Trevor, it's good to be with you this morning. Um, those of you who are new uh, and, and visiting for the first time, welcome from out of town. And uh, if you've got your Bibles, that's where we're going to spend our time this morning because we are a church that believes, preaches, and seeks to understand God's Word. If you have a Bible, would you open up to Matthew chapter 1? Matthew chapter 1 is where we're going to hang out this morning. The title of this morning's sermon is What's in a Name? What's in a Name? We will be in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 23. Um, when uh, it is easy to follow Jesus, plenty of people will join in on, on, that, on that mission. When it's easy to follow Jesus, plenty of people will get involved. But when it gets hard to follow Jesus, people will often fall away. And, uh, and many people do not want to be Christians alone in their neighborhood or in their city. Even though being a Christian is the most joy-filled, peace-filled, hope-filled movement you could ever imagine being a part of, it is also challenging and difficult. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and life abundantly. The promise of God is that we would have abundant life. And at the exact same time, Jesus says, if you would come after me, you must deny yourself every day. Take up your cross every day and you must follow me. 
And when Jesus talked about taking up his cross, it was not a piece of jewelry that you would wear. Uh, It really meant a kind of dying, that to be a Christian was to die to yourself every day. And so Christian life is full life, it's wonderful life, it's amazing, and it's also difficult and challenging. And if you're going to to follow and trust Jesus when it gets lonely, when it gets difficult, when it gets hard, you're going to have to know that he is worth it. You're going to have to know that he is worth it. And this morning, I want to spend some time, and we will spend some time in a text, uh, really about Jesus' first followers. When we talk about the first followers of Jesus, we sometimes think of Peter or we think of John, but the real first followers of Jesus are a guy named Joseph and a girl named Mary and their uh, commitment to sort of give up almost everything in order to follow Jesus. And they, in order to do so, they have to know who he is. So um, that's what we're going to spend this morning on. And so if you've got a Bible, Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 23. Let's read the text and then we'll walk through it together. This is the birth of Jesus. Verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This text is God's word for us this morning. Here's how we will spend our time together. At the beginning, I want to talk a little bit about the significance of the arrival of Christ, and then I'll talk about his mission, and then I'll talk about his identity. And what you'll discover as we move through the text this morning is that who Christ is, his very name, has almost everything we need to be able to follow him faithfully, in when it, when, especially when things get difficult. So let us dive into the story together. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, the story begins with the birth of Christ by saying that Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Now, when you hear the story of Joseph and Mary, you probably hear the word engagement. But engagement was a little bit different than uh, it is today. Let me give you just a rough outline of what would have happened in Mary's world. At some point, Mary, who was a young girl, would want to be married to someone else, in this case, Joseph. And so Joseph's family would then come to Mary's family, and Joseph's family would give a pretty sizable amount of money for Mary's hand in marriage. And after he had given that dowry, Joseph and Joseph's parents had given that dowry, um, 
For a full year, Mary would live with her family, but would be sort of publicly and legally committed to Joseph. And over the course of that full year, um, part of Joseph and his family's desire in seeking out Mary's hand was wanting to know that Mary was pure, that Mary was a virgin, that Mary had not slept around. And so that full year where Joseph is apart from Mary, and Mary lives with her home, and the dowry's been paid, and now they're waiting this year, is this betrothal period. And the, and the thing for Mary that would be so difficult would be, the worst thing that could happen would be to get pregnant by someone else. And yet into the story, we are initially told that Mary, who is committed publicly to Joseph, so much so that if they were to call it off now, they would have to legally divorce. Before they had come together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, upon hearing this, you can only imagine, would be as skeptical as all of us are likely to be. There's just no way that this could be the case. And Joseph's got some options. His first option is that he can have Mary stoned. That's in his right. After all, he is pledged to be her husband and she is now pregnant. And so he has the right to have her stoned. But he decides not to do that. We can't even imagine how devastated Joseph is. But he decides not to publicly shame her, not to have her punished. He doesn't do any of that. He decides, as you see in the text, that he is resolved to divorce her quietly. Things are going to end between the two of them, but he is not going to put her on display. That's where Joseph lands. And he does that until his mind is completely changed by a dream. So Joseph has decided, I'm going to end things with Mary. And then he has a dream. And if you drop down to verse 24, which we didn't read, it says, when Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded. So whatever happens in Joseph's dream is enough to move him from, I'm going to divorce her, to, I'm not going to divorce her. And he will have to endure all of the consequences that come with that. He's going to take Mary as his wife, and it's going to ruin their reputations. Do you see that? I hope you see that, that when Joseph says, no, I'm going to marry her, because the child in her is from the Holy Spirit, that he's going to be mocked. That people are going to say, you are an idiot if you believe that. For, for Mary, she's, going to, she's not going to have the wedding with her friends there. She, she's not going to get the, the, all the things that she may have planned about the kind of wedding she would have wanted to have. Instead, her wedding is going to happen in suspicion and shame and dishonor. And then what's going to happen after? They're going to have to flee their homeland. For, for Joseph and Mary to move forward with the very thing that they're being asked to move forward with is going to cost them a lot. Why would they do all of this? Why is Joseph going to endure mockery for the rest of his life? Why is Mary going to endure suspicion and shame? Why are they going to endure fleeing their family? Why? Because of who the child is. Verse 
That's why. The Nicene Creed, which is an ancient Christian creed that Christians have been reciting for centuries, reminds us that God is fully God. Jesus is fully God and fully man. The only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through Him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, He came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. God left His throne and entered into the womb of a young girl. God was a four-week, five-week, six-week, seven-week-old fetus in the womb. God entered into Mary's womb. God took on flesh. It is crucial to believe this. And as Christians, we believe this because what's the alternative? If Jesus isn't God, What's our other option? If he's just some other dude's son, could we really trust him with our future? I mean, I'm willing to trust him with my future. I'm willing to trust him with the forgiveness of my sins. I'm willing to trust him with eternal life. Right? He must be fully God and fully man. And I know that's hard to believe. I know that it's difficult for many of us to believe. And last week we talked about having doubts at Christmas and how we deal with that. And hey, if you're here this morning and you struggle to believe these things, know that you are welcome here. But this is what we hold to at Christmas. God took on flesh and was born of Mary. God, by the Holy Spirit, became a child and entered into our world. Why? Is God coming to Mary? Why does God come to us? Why is he born of a woman? Why would we give up everything and follow him? Why would Joseph, why would Mary, why should you endure mockery, endure dishonor, endure shame? Why should you endure when people say, you're a Christian, you shouldn't be a Christian. Is, don't you know that's just old, that's just traditional, that's just a crutch that you have to endure. We're so much smarter than we were then. Why would you endure that? And the answer is found in the names he is given. So I want to look at what the angel says to Joseph and these two names that Jesus is given. Two names. Isn't it strange? Do you ever think about how the, the word you'll probably hear most often in your entire life is your name and you didn't pick that word? Someone else picked that word for you? Your parents? Some of you like your name. Some of you don't like your name. Um, some of you have parents know how hard it is to choose a name. Names express meaning, aspirations for the children. Uh, the, 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 when parents have, we have a son uh, named Dietrich, who is uh, named after Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who is a, a, a German theologian who died in his radical commitment to standing in opposition to Hitler. And, um, and I, I'll never forget, after we named Dietrich Dietrich, because uh, we wanted our kids to have a sense of, 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 of who, as, as are their parents, like who inspired us, like who are our heroes, like who do we want to point them to? And so we named our kid Dietrich, and I'll, I'll never forget that I had a German friend at the time who came to me and pulled me aside and said, Trevor, I want to let you know, German people don't name their kids Dietrich. Um, 
And, uh, and we said, hey, we don't, we don't care. We know that names are significant. We know they're important. Um, we've seen recently, you know, if you've not followed this, Elon Musk and his uh, partner Grimes, they, uh, they named their child like AX112427-3 or something insane like that. Um, names are weird, and they're important, and they're interesting. And here in Matthew, in Joseph's dream, an angel speaks to him and gives him the name of this child in Mary's womb. And the name that he is given, if you see in the text, you shall name him Jesus. Why? Why will you call him Jesus, verse 21? For he will save his people. The name Jesus is the name Joshua, or the name Yeshua. And here, God's Son, born by God's action on behalf of God's mission, emerging from Mary's womb, is to get the name Jesus because he's come to save. Now, I just want you to imagine for a moment that you got to choose what Jesus came to save us from. Right? Notice there, right, in verse, in verse 21, he will save his people from, imagine you could fill in the blank there. What would you choose? What would you choose? How would you finish it this morning? How, what, what would you want God to come and save you from this morning? God, would you come and save us from confusion? Would you, maybe, maybe some of you would say, God, would you come and save us from corrupt leaders? God, would you come and save me from family brokenness? God, would you come and save me from loneliness? God, would you come right now and save me from depression? Would you save me from low self-esteem? Would you save me from purposelessness? Would you save me from singleness? Would you save us from childlessness? I don't know what your fill-in-the-blank is, but I imagine that if I gave you free reign to say what it is you want to be saved from, you could probably think of some things that you'd want God to rescue you from. Even throughout church history, in the Christian church, we've seen war, famine, economic inequality, poor education. I mean, all kinds of problems. And, and here Jesus is given a name, and that name is Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. The answer is in his name. It's from their sins. When a patient shows up at a hospital, the doctor seeks to diagnose the patient, and the, the doctor is presented with symptoms. That's typically what happens, right? You go to the doctor, and the doctor says, What are your symptoms? And the doctor tries to then figure out not just how to solve the symptoms, which are a challenge, but the doctor, if they're a good doctor, is always trying to think about what is the root cause of the symptoms. What, what is causing the thing that is leading to the symptoms? You can't just treat the symptoms. You can't, you can't just give Advil to everything. Right? You can't just go, oh, you're in pain? Here's some Advil, right? If you're going to be a good doctor, you've got to get to the symptom, you got to get to the root cause of the issues. And when God wants to heal the world, he makes the diagnosis. He declares that what's wrong with the world at its core, at its, at its, at its most basic level, what's really wrong with the world, he says, is sin. 
And we look out in the world, we see the symptoms of sin everywhere. We see it on the news. We see it in our own homes. We see it in our schools. We see it on social media. We see it in our workplaces and our friendships. We see it on the streets as we're driving. We see sin, sin's symptoms everywhere. And, and it's amazing because if you watch the news or you read the newspaper, um, which maybe a few people do, I, we still read a newspaper, but when you, when you were watching the news, right, like people are happy to talk about symptoms. Why are things like this? Why, why are things so broken? Or what do we do about this? Or how do we solve this problem? And there's lots of different solutions to those problems, but you're not going to be invited on the news if when you're asked what the problems are, you just say, the problem is sin. That's your last appearance. <laughs> the problem is brokenness between human beings and God. That's the problem. Our, our world loves to talk about symptoms, but they don't like to talk about Matthew 1.21. You shall call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's what he's come to do. We are blind against this. The world's greatest problem is that human beings are in rebellion against their creator. The Bible is not unclear about this. That is the biggest problem in the world, and God wants to do something about it, and so he begins his rescue operation. He comes on a rescue mission to rescue people from their sins because we are sinners. And God comes to rescue us. Now, when I call you a sinner, I'm not saying I'm better than you. I'm not saying that at all. I'm not calling you a name. When I say you are a sinner, my, my goal in saying that is to try to tell you the truth about the diagnosis that stands before you and functions as the cause of the problems in your life. Either your sin or the ways in which others have sinned against you or the ways in which you are born into a world that's broken and marred by sin. So I'm not saying by calling you a sinner that I'm somehow good and you're somehow bad. I am the, I am the worst sinner in the room that I know. I'm saying that God made you, and God created you so that your life would be about him. He made you. He gave you life so that you would relate to him, so that you would wake up in the morning and have an experience of saying, God, my life is yours, and, and I want to be in relationship with you, and so I want everything I do to be about you. And rather than doing that, we wake up in the morning and we ignore God. We disrespect him in the world that he's made, and instead we live as though we are in charge. You already heard me say it, right? The, the catechism's first question and answer. I mean, that is the message you hear everywhere. Everywhere you are told. It's your life. It's your body. It's, it's, it's whatever you want. Like, you have autonomy. You can self-actualize. You can become whoever you want to become. It's ultimately up to you. You're in charge of you. You're the boss of you. We're told that incessantly. And then we open up this ancient book where we find God say, if you want to be truly satisfied, you have to understand that that's a complete lie. You're made by God for God. And that our biggest problem is that we break his commands. And every time we break a command of God, we are saying to God, I'm in charge. 
not you. I know what's best, not you. I'll do what I want. And if you're so lucky, God, I will invite you into my life so that you can be my personal assistant. That is what we do. And God's reaction to our rebellion is anger. Because we like to act like we are the greatest. Jonathan Edwards. Man, I love Jonathan Edwards. Boy, does he get a bad rap in our world today. Because if you come across Jonathan Edwards, almost always today, you are reading Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, which is an amazing sermon, but one which is often sort of like twisted, missing the real beauty behind what it is he was trying to articulate at the heart of this great revival um, that, that he was, you know, a, a, a major part of. In that sermon on July 8, 1741, when Jonathan Edwards was preaching the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I mean, he doesn't even finish the sermon because hundreds of people are moved to tears. I mean, it profoundly shapes people's lives. And in that sermon, Jonathan Edwards says that God holds you over this pit of hell. And he, he's trying to say God is, God is holding you and beneath, beneath you are the consequences of your rebellion. And so he, he says flee from the wrath to come because he's trying to confront his audience so that his audience would understand the consequence of their standing before God and saying, I'm in charge, not you. And when Jonathan Edwards was preaching that, please hear me, he was echoing the words of the most loving man who's ever lived. Jesus of Nazareth is the most loving man who's ever lived. I think that's indisputable. He is the holiest person who's ever lived. He, and he gave up his life for, for people who are sinners. He is the most loving man who's ever lived. And Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Because Jesus wants you to know that sin is serious. That God will not be mocked. And that God will deal with and punish sin because God is holy, holy, holy. And so God, looking at a world filled with people in rebellion to him, decides that he's not content with just giving them over to their sins. Instead, he sends this baby boy to pay the penalty for their sins. That's why he comes to earth. He dies to take the punishment that we deserve. And we turn his name into a flippant thing that we say when we're irritated. We take the name of Jesus, and when we get cut off on the freeway, we spit it out like it means nothing. I wish that every time you heard someone say the name Jesus, no matter how they're saying, I wish that your, your imagination could be drawn to the beauty of what Christ has done for you. That when you hear people just say the name Jesus, that you might, you might respond by saying, that's the one who died for me. That's the one who came to save me. That's what Christmas is about, God's rescue plan. And I got to tell you, that makes you, that makes you very important. That's how much God loves you. 
that he sent his son to rescue you. So that's the first name. And the second name is right here at the, in the quoting of Isaiah. So not only is Jesus to get the name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins, he also is going to be called something else. This won't be his name so much as it is his identity. Verse 22, this took place to fulfill what the Lord spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Not only is it about rescue, it's about relationship. God with us. The divide between God and man has been crossed, not by us getting to God, but by God coming to us. If you're anything like me, the vast majority of you live regularly on the understanding that things with you and God would be a lot better if you could get your act together. I, I just know you enough to know that, that what you tend to do is you tend to live life, things go kind of good, kind of bad, and when you mess up, it creates some distance between you and God. And some of you in this room right now are experiencing that distance between you and God, and you are under the impression that the way to close that gap is you just to get some more wins under your belt. Just a few more days of doing more right than wrong, and eventually you and God can be close again. Some of you haven't been close to God in a long time, and you think that's a problem you can fix. Years ago, um, a friend was telling a story of a first date that he went on with a girl in high school. There's a girl that he had wanted to go on a date with for a long time, and he finally got the courage enough to invite her out on a first date. And she said yes. And you know how high school kids are, right? They, they're, they, they're all giddy and excited about that first opportunity, and they look at the nicest restaurant in the area, and he decides he's going to take her to the nicest restaurant in the area. It might have been like Olive Garden or something, but it was the nicest restaurant in their area. And he calls her up, and, and he, he, he says, can I, can I pick you up Friday at 7? And she says yes. And so uh, Friday comes at 5 o'clock, and he puts on like a nice outfit, and uh, he's getting ready to head over there. And about 30 minutes before, um, his mom knocks on his bedroom door and says, Son, the, uh, the basement is flooded with sewage. Apparently a pipe has burst. I know you've got a date tonight, but you can't go on this first date with this girl. You've got to stay home and clean it up. He's just devastated. So he, he calls her up and he says, hey, I can't make it. We have to reschedule. We're going to have a, it's going to be great, but I, I, got, I, gotta, I have this thing I got to deal with. I got to clean up all this sewage in the basement. And she says, I totally understand. Let's reschedule. And so he hangs up. He changes out of his nice clothes. He changes into um, like rain boots, uh, you know, and sort of like dirty clothes. And he he gets a bucket, and he, he goes down into the basement, and he's in four or five inches of just gray water and sewage. 
And he's, he's scooping up buckets and dumping it out. I mean, just filthy, disgusting. It just reeks. And as he's working for a little while um, and trying to make some headway, he hears steps coming down the, into the attic. I'm sorry, into the basement. And he looks over to see his mother, but it's not his mother. It's the girl he's going to go on a date with. And she's standing on the steps. And she's got rain boots in one hand. And she's got a bucket in the other. And he says, what are you doing? And she says, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help you out with this. And he says, that's not, you know, you don't, I got, I got this, like, this is not how, this is not the first date that I wanted. <laughs> he says, I cannot think of a better first date than to, than, to, than to do this with you. And so she gets into it, and the two of them spend their first date shoveling sewage out of a basement together. And they ended up getting married. And it became this, like, amazing first story of, of just, like, what. And I, I think about this story often because that is the image of, of, of Christmas. It, it's us with a bucket in our lives trying to clean up our own lives. With this, this, this thinking that, like, I'll, I'll go get to God once I get this cleaned up. Let me deal with this mess, and then I'll go to him. But Christmas says that is absolutely not the case. That Christmas is we are up to our, up to our knees in sewage from the messes that we have made. And we're trying to deal with it. And we look over and here comes God. And God says, I want to get into your mess with you. Because that's the kind of God I am. No other faith talks about a God who embraces our pain, embraces our mess, gets into it with us because he desires not just to rescue us, he desires to be relationship with us in the midst of the struggle. He has come at Christmas to get into your mess with you. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He is not God somewhere else that you can climb up to? Who among you has a rope so long that you could throw it up into the heavens and climb up your way to God? None of us do. He comes down to us, into our mess, so that he can clean up the mess that we've made if we will allow him to. I would argue that the, that the powerful and that the oppressors in this world, they must hate the idea of a God like this. Because abandonment of power for the sake of love is contrary to everything that power stands for. But the broken, the oppressed, those of you who are here this morning in the midst of a mess, you can find in Christ a Savior that you can trust in a world where trust is awfully dangerous. So let me ask you this morning, have you been rescued? Have you invited God into your mess? If not, I'm glad that you're here this morning. I, I, I can't emphasize this enough. Our hope this Christmas isn't in the idea of Jesus. It's in Jesus himself. It's in the Jesus who is here in this room right now. The Jesus who has brought you here. Who has been knocking on the door of your heart 
the, the one who is inv- asking to be let in so that he can get into your mess with you, so that he can restore you, so that he can heal you, so he can forgive you, so he can make you new. That is the Jesus of Christmas. And he's not waiting for you on the other side of your mess. He gets into it with you. He is the one that I want you to unwrap this year. Because Jesus didn't come just to bring self-esteem. Though let me remind you, if you understand Christ, your worth is more than you could ever imagine. He didn't come to bring us just purpose, though he definitely does. He didn't come to end loneliness, though he'll do that too. He has come to rescue you and to be relationship with you. That's what he's come to do. I want you to think for a moment about what you see as important in your life, as the mission of your life. What what are you all about? Is it to be a great mom or a great dad? Is it to be a great worker? Is it to accomplish something wonderful? Is it to make something amazing? Is it to impress your neighbors? Is it to get power or prestige? Is it to be rich? I don't know what your, your mission is. But I hope that as a Christian, what sits underneath all of it is the knowledge of God's rescue, the relationship, and a desire to see other people rescued. I hope that as Christians, we aren't just the people who say, he came to rescue me, he came to rescue me, but we also learn to be a people who say, he came to rescue you. That we would be a go-tell-it-on-the-mountain kind of people. That we would genuinely believe that people without Christ are going to hell. And if we believed that, our evangelism, our lives would be marked by God. We'd want to proclaim to everybody, no, 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 you don't make Jesus Lord. He already is Lord. Your believing in him doesn't make him come. He already has come. The God who made everything has come. We are to rejoice, for he's come to rescue. He's come to save, and he's come to be God to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you sent Jesus. That you named him Jesus to remind us of what it is we need most. That we need to be saved from our sins. That every single person in this room, we do what we shouldn't do. That we ignore your laws. We ignore what you've taught us to to live. We ignore the way that you've made us to be. We ignore you and we live our own ways. And you are not content to leave us there. You come, you sent Jesus to us so that we might be rescued, so that we might be in relationship with you, God. God, what greater news is that, that that we can be united to you by Christ? Let us understand that while we're all looking for presents at Christmas, you give the best presents to your people. You are a great gift giver, and you have given us the greatest gift of all. You've given us Jesus to rescue us, to restore us, to renew us, to bring us into relationship with you. So God, I do pray for all who are here this morning who have this conception that they need to get to you, help them instead see that you've come to them 
that you're pursuing them this morning. And that if they are saved at all, it is by your grace through faith alone, not by anything they can do. Help us to see that sin is the the root of all of our problems. Help us to see the way that Jesus came to deal with sin, to forgive it and to heal it and to set us onto a new path. May we be hope-filled, joy-filled Christians in the midst of our mess, in the midst of our difficulties. We anticipate that day next week when we get to celebrate your coming. And so in this moment, Lord, we just ask that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear. That you are Jesus. Jesus, Jesus. You came to save us from our sins. You are Emmanuel, God with us. Help us to know the beauty and comfort of that. In your name.